In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever thought of the Bible as a symphony? A symphony? It's actually a book with that title, the, script, uh, the, the Symphony of Scripture, I think it's called. Although he never, I was disappointed, it's a spectacular book. Mark Strom wrote it. But he never actually carries that imagery of the symphony through the book. But think about the Bible and think about a symphony or an orchestra. A symphony is made up of many different instruments. And not only do they all make different sounds, you know, a trumpet doesn't sound like a violin, doesn't sound like a drum, they all make different sounds, but they all play different pieces of music, but they all come together in harmony. And it's often the case that if you were to listen to one of those instruments playing its part all on its own, some of those individual pits, individual bits aren't really all that nice to listen to just by themselves. Um, Veronica, of course, plays the piano for the local symphony. And sometimes I listen to her practice and her, her pieces, the piano parts of these bigger symphonic pieces, and sometimes I listen and they sound really nice. And sometimes I listen, and she's not going to take offense at this, sometimes I listen and it's like, oh. Please stop. Please stop. Over and over and over. It doesn't sound very pleasant. But then I go to the concert, or I go on the internet, or go into iTunes and look up the piece, if I don't know it already, and listen to it. And it's like, oh, that's how the piano fits into the bigger, the bigger piece of music. And you go, into, you go to the concert, and I hear her play along with everyone else those parts that she's been practicing suddenly make sense. And all those parts come together in something that's beautiful and wonderful and pleasing to listen to. And the Bible is a lot like that. There are all sorts of themes, and sometimes we put all of our attention on just one bit, one theme, and then wonder why the music doesn't sound very good. But the better we know... And the better we understand the Bible and, and the big story of God and his people, the better able we are then to hear all of those themes so that we're better able to hear the grand music that God has, not only for us to listen to, but also to participate in. If I were telling a parable today the way that Jesus would, I might say, the kingdom of God is like a symphony or like an orchestra. And when Jesus came, he introduced a new piece of music to his people. The thing was, it wasn't really a new piece of music. It's just that everybody had forgotten that piece of music. The Lord had taught it long before. He taught it to Adam, and he taught it to Eve. And when their children lost the tune, the Lord came again and he taught the music to Abraham. And then he taught it to Moses. And he taught it to the Israelites. He taught it to the judges and he taught it to the kings and he taught it to the people. And it wasn't an easy tune. Mostly because sinful human beings lacked the full ability to play it. And so the tune that God taught Abraham and taught Moses and taught David, 
It was like a simple melody line played on the piano with one hand. But it was still true to the original. But even as simple as it was, Israel still struggled to play it. And so then when Jesus came, he amazed everybody by sitting down at the piano and playing the real deal, the full harmony with both hands. Or maybe that's not enough. Maybe Jesus was like one of those guys you see on the street corner, and he's got the drum, and he's got the harmonica thing that he blows through with his mouth, and he's got cymbals between his knees, and he's blowing a horn that's attached to his head, and all these instruments all in one, and somehow they come together, and it works. And the music, it took on new life. It was fuller and it was richer and more beautiful than anything anybody had heard since Adam's day. And of course, some people didn't like it. Some people in the meantime had gotten used to other music. Maybe the Pharisees were listening to rap. The Sadducees were listening to country. And some people flat out refused to learn it or even to listen to it. Or they thought they already knew the tune and said, no, this is how it's supposed to go. Jesus isn't doing it right. But Jesus taught the music to a few, and pretty soon they taught it to more, and thousands of people were playing, and the music was spreading all through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually to the whole world. And at some point, someone taught it to each of us. And now you and I are playing the music. I think we could say the kingdom is a bit like that. And yet even still we know, or at least we should know, that there is more yet to come to this piece of music. What Jesus taught us to play isn't everything there is to it. It's like the piano solo leading into that great orchestral piece. It's like the overture that leads us into the big movie. It gives us a taste of what's to come. But to hear the full symphony, we have to wait for Jesus to return. For Jesus to come back from heaven, bringing the kingdom with him in all its majesty and eternal glory. And so in the meantime, we play the peace he's taught us, that peace he has specially equipped us to play, And as we see in our epistle this morning from 1 Corinthians, at the heart of this music Jesus has taught us, the melody of it, the thing that holds it all together and that will lead it into something so much greater one day, the theme with all of its variations, the heart is this music of love. So we'll look this morning at the passage Karen read read for us from 1 Corinthians 13. And it's a passage I know we're probably all very familiar with, and yet it's also a passage that I think we're very prone to misunderstanding because we so often hear it or read it out of context. We hear it read at weddings, for example, and that's not bad, but we hear it read at at weddings as if it's talking about romantic love between a husband and a wife. Or we see little bits of it painted on or stitched on bits of home decor throw pillows or stencils on the wall in in someone's foyer or something like that. And because of that, we often miss the point of the passage. 
What Paul says here about love comes in the middle of a much bigger discussion in 1 Corinthians about the church and about living together as the body of Christ, about spiritual gifts, and about worship. That's the context. So yes, what he describes here about love, it could be love of husband and wife, but only because it is first and foremost about love amongst Christian brothers and sisters. Love in the church. And then that love spills over into every aspect of life and into every relationship in light of Jesus and what he has done. So if we think back during Epiphany Tide, we were reading in Romans. And we were reading where Paul describes the church as being, you remember, like a body. He talks about everyone being gifted and equipped for a certain task. And he stresses it's not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the whole church and our kingdom mission. And at the beginning of the season, we were reading about the church as a temple. Each of us a stone shaped and carved and cut very carefully by the Lord, and then all purposely, all purposefully fitted together as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And last Sunday, we read Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. They were boasting to each other. You think about it in the context of that body imagery. And in contrast to that, they were boasting to each other about their gifts and achievements, and they'd, they'd started following teachers who boasted in their achievements. They were boasting like Greeks and Romans typically boasted. It was how people climbed to the top of the heap, improved their social standing, and demanded respect and honor. But in contrast, Paul describes his own accomplishments. What are the great things Paul had accomplished and done? Well, he'd been arrested, he'd been beaten and whipped and scourged and shipwrecked. For the sake of Jesus and the gospel, he'd been cold and hungry and naked and shamed and run out of town in dishonor. All for the sake of his brothers and sisters. The very ones, in fact, who were in Corinth rejecting him, didn't want him around. And you think, well, how is this all possible? You look at Paul and see how he lived for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of gospel and for the sake of the church. You look at the sacrifice and you say, boy, how do we do that? How do I live for the sake of others? How do I sacrifice for the sake of others? And so as we prepare for the season of Lent, these last two Sundays pointed, pointed us toward two things. First, discipline, the discipline of grace, and then humility. Today, the lessons point us to a third thing, even more important, and that's love. Love is the theme that, that ties the whole symphony of the kingdom together. And so after describing the way the church acts as a body with each using his or her gifts for the sake of others, again, this is in Romans, and using her gifts and everyone in the church using their gifts ultimately for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, Paul writes, we'll back up to verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And now he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, which is, he's just been talking about gift, miraculous gifts, He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm like a violin screeching away on my part of the symphony and thinking that's all there is to it and I'm the most important thing. 
I'm the pianist banging away on the piano on just my part, and I don't want anybody to listen to anybody else. I want them to just listen to me, even though everybody says, you don't sound very good all by yourself. That, that can't be the whole thing. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned... Talk about sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. So it's not just about having and using gifts. It's not even about doing great things for the church or even all of these sacrifices, like Paul listed all these things that had happened to him for the sake of the gospel. It's not even just about that. It's about love. That's the motivator. The Corinthian church had no lack of gifts. Read 1 Corinthians. They had no lack of gifts. They had no lack of activity. They had no lack of people wanting to contribute money to this cause or that cause. One of the reasons Paul wrote to them was to raise money to support the struggling Christians in Jerusalem. But the problem in Corinth was a lack of love. Without love, all these amazing things they were doing might well have been nothing. Back in chapter 3, Paul used the illustration of building a temple. You think about the temple in Jerusalem. It was built of carefully hewn wood, carefully cut stones. It had gold and precious, precious jewels. So Paul talks about Jesus as the foundation. And others, like, like he and the Corinthians, they were building on that foundation. But he's saying not everybody's building with that well-cut stone or with gems and precious metals. Some people are coming to church and they're building things with hay and straw. At the end, he says, it's all going to be tested with fire. The hay and the straw will go up in smoke. They will not last. And it's an image here that gives us a sense of what lies in store. Other passages talk of the old heaven and earth passing away and a new world being ushered in. And I'm sure much of the language is figurative. The reality is, at this point, beyond our understanding what exactly all that means. But however it happens, though, that which is unworthy, that which is the product of sinfulness and selfishness, that which does not honor God, that which is not motivated by love, will be consumed and pass away leaving a new world in which the holy and the God-honoring remains. Only the work in which people truly invested, the stuff Paul describes as the the well-cut stones and the gold and the silver and the precious jewels, that's the stuff that will remain. So there will be people who make a good show of building, but if love is not their motive, it will not last. It'll be exposed and consumed by the judgment of God. If love isn't the motive, when Jesus comes and draws our music into his own great symphony, those who've been playing their own tune will have nothing to contribute. And more importantly, will have no share in the kingdom. Paul goes on in verses 5 to 7. He says, love is patient. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what's left. This is the melody that Jesus will take up into his great symphony. He and the Spirit teach us to play our parts in this tune. And this tune prepares us to play in that great piece of music when the, when the concert comes. And it stands in stark contrast with the ways and values of the present age. But it stands in contrast, too, with the ways and values even of many people in the church. So what Paul does is to hold up Jesus as our model for love because all sorts of ideas about love are thrown at us. Some of them are false. Some of them are partially true. But what does real love look like? And Paul points us to Jesus and to the cross. Jesus is patient and kind. Remember, he came to condemned sinners. He came to his enemies. He came to the people who made a mess of the creation he lovingly created. And he did not come to heap up more condemnation. He came to redeem. We have dishonored God. We've made a mess of everything he loves. He would be within his rights to sit down at that divine keyboard and press Control-Alt-Smite and reboot the system and start over from scratch and wipe us out. We are the blue screen of death in his world. And yet God has every right to leave us dead in our sins, but because he loves us, he is patient, and he has given himself the life of his son to restore us to life and to his presence, to make us his people once again. Again, love is patient and kind. Paul writes, love is not envious or boastful. Think again of Jesus. He who is God humbled himself in the incarnation for our sake, becoming one of us. And he came not as a great king or warrior, but as a son of a humble girl and her very ordinary husband, raised in a poor backwater, and finally dying for our sake, the humiliating and painful death of a criminal. A death that we deserve and that he did not. He had more right to boast than anyone who has ever lived. But as they pressed the crown of thorns on his head and beat him and mocked his lordship, he chose not to revile them in return. Instead, as he was dying, he prayed for the very men who were standing there gloating and jeering at him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Paul says, love is not irritable or resentful. Again, God is patient and long-suffering. Rather than resenting us for our sins, the Lord has given himself to redeem us from them. Paul says, love does not rejoice at wrongs. In fact, just the opposite. The angels in heaven rejoice with the Lord whenever a sinner repents. Again, think of Jesus. 
Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Has anyone ever borne more or endured more than Jesus did? And with that image in our heads, we need to think of ourselves. Are we patient and kind? And be honest. It's easy to, when we ask that, it's easy to think of, oh yeah, I'm patient and kind with so-and-so and and with so-and-so, with the people that it's easy to be patient and kind with, the people we want to be patient and kind with. But what about those difficult situations and those difficult people? Are we really patient and kind? Are we envious and boastful or like Jesus? Are we humble and willing to give up our honor for the sake of others? Even for the sake of people who hurt us and wrong us? Are we willing to admit when we're wrong or when we've sinned? Is our desire reconciliation with others or to be right and to retain our honor? Are we irritable and resentful? I think these, in particular, are sins that Christians can be very tolerant of. Sometimes we even turn irritability and resentment into virtues when the right people in the right situations come our way. I mean, what's my reaction when the Mormon missionaries knock on my door? What's my reaction when a telemarketer calls? I can be pretty irritable. And I think most people would say, well, if you were irritable when the Mormons knocked on your door... Or you were irritable when that telemarketer called. That's okay. Oh, you stuck it to them because they're bad people. Sometimes we tolerate these things. I was convicted myself this week. On Friday, I was out riding my bike along the penstock and got attacked by a dog, bit my leg, which is why this is the first time I've been standing on it for a long period of time, and it's, it's kind of hurting but I was, I, I, I was surprised after I rode away. I was like, wow, that guy was cussing me out. I don't know, you, your dog bit me, and somehow you're throwing every profanity in the book at me. And I kept my cool. I tried to be a good witness. And then what happened? I'm in the middle of trying to get something done a couple days before that, and TELUS calls with their auto-dialer. Three times in a row, and I keep having to get up and interrupt what I'm doing, and I pick it up, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and there's nobody there. So finally, when, when the last time I picked it up, and someone actually did answer on the other end of the auto-dialer, I wasn't mean, but I was not kind. And Christians often, we can be downright curmudgeonly when it comes to sinners and to non-Christians. And a lot of times we see that as a virtue. We get very self-righteous. And people of Jesus' day were often like that when it came, for example, to, say, tax collectors or prostitutes or Gentiles. But what did Jesus do? Jesus came to save. Jesus forgave people like that when they came to him. He made them new. He made them part of his family. So again, we have to ask, where do we fall short of Jesus' model of love? In our families, or in our workplaces, or in our schools, or even in our church. And imagine the difference it would make around us if love were the driving force and the motive behind everything we do. Imagine what it would be like if 
if we gave of ourselves and our rights and our honor, our glory, the way that Jesus did. And it sounds so good, doesn't it? But it kind of seems impossible, too. How can we ever give of ourselves the way Jesus did? Sometimes it's hard enough just giving this way to the people we love. What about people who aren't close to us, people who have hurt us, or people who are our enemies? This is why we need to have that example of Jesus always before us. We need to remember that we were his enemies. We need to remember that he owed us nothing but judgment. And yet he became incarnate for us and he died for us. We need to think and meditate on the depth of love that Jesus manif- that God manifested toward us in Jesus. To meditate on the deep, deep love of God that we see at Christmas in Jesus becoming one of us and at Easter as Jesus dies and rises to life for us. Brothers and sisters, the love of God in Jesus should motivate and transform us. Nothing else. The love of God manifest in Jesus. But that's not all. Love is, it's impossible. But Jesus has done more than give us an example. He's washed us of our sin. He's given us, and he's given us God's own spirit. When you think back to John the Baptist, he told the people, I've plunged you into the water, but that's not enough. There's one who's coming who will plunge you into the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins and leave us in some kind of neutral state. He forgives us our sins, and then he pours his own life into us, forgiving the past and preparing us for God's future. Remember, the Lord didn't rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt just to cut them loose in the wilderness to do whatever they wanted. He freed them from Egypt, and he made them his people, and he took up his dwelling in their midst, as he led them to to a new home and a new way of life to give him glory and to, to manifest his presence in their midst so that the world would give him glory and would come to want to know what it's all about. And just so with Jesus, but on a bigger scale. Jesus rescues us from sin and death. He makes us his people. More specifically, Paul talks about Jesus making us his own body, And he comes and dwells not just in our midst, but actually inside of us. He makes us his temple as he pours his spirit into us. But his ultimate plan, it's not just to save us and then cut us loose in the world to do whatever we want, but to save us and then redeem his entire creation and to have us as his agents working in that process. He wants to set us back on the track that Adam and Eve abandoned when they sinned. He wants to teach us the song that he taught them so that we can be singing and playing that music once again, so that we can be his stewards and his priests in his world. And so as Israel's destination was a promised land, our destination is that new Jerusalem, the kingdom that Jesus has promised to bring one day in all its fullness. That's the future. But in Jesus... There's this amazing thing that's happened. That future has burst into the present. 
In the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us a foretaste of what's to come. He invites us to play the music of the kingdom. And Bob has his part, and Joe has her part, and Yvonne has her part, and Trevor has his, and Matt has his, and John has his, and I have mine. But they're all variations on this theme of kingdom love that we see at the cross. Again, if it's not driven by love, it won't last. If we're not playing our variation on that theme, it will have no place in that great symphony. And Paul drives this point home in the rest of the passage. It's not just that the things we do without love will someday go up in smoke when judgment comes and, and the kingdom finally comes in all its fullness, but even many of the good things Jesus calls us to do and to manifest and to be, even some of those things will be overwhelmed by that great theme of love in the end. Look at verses 8 to 13. He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians kind of gives us a fairly distinct impression or sense that the church in that city was fixated on certain miraculous gifts, especially prophecy in tongues not only elevating those who had those gifts above others, but emphasizing to everyone that these gifts were sort of the end-all, be-all of Christianity. Forget everything else, put it all aside, pursue prophecy, pursue tongues, because that's where it's at. But Paul is warning them and saying, no, these gifts are great and they are useful, but there is something much, much, much more important. You need to cultivate love. You need to cultivate the kind of love that you see manifest by Jesus at the cross. If you want to build the kingdom, don't pursue gifts. The Spirit will give you whatever you need. If you've got those gifts, use them. But use them lovingly. Pursue love above all else. If you pursue love first, the Spirit will give you what you need to do it, whatever that may be. When the kingdom is here and we're all living in God's presence, there will no longer be any need of prophecy, but there will be a need for love, won't there? And the same goes for tongues. Who needs tongues when the curse of Babel is gone? But we'll still need love. Paul describes it as in terms of growing from a child into an adult. When I was a kid, little, little kid, I had a big wheel. And was that a Gen X thing? Kind of like a big plastic tricycle with big wheels? And that big wheel taught me how to pedal, and it taught me how to steer, and it taught me how not to run people over. And at one point, I grew up, and I got a bike, and I had training wheels on my bike that kept me from falling over. And all those things did their work, but now I'm a grown-up. I don't need those kitty things. I ride a real bike. 
In the present age, our view of God is dim. Paul uses this other imagery. He talks about a mirror, and in the ancient world, mirrors were just made of polished metal, and so they weren't always very clear. Sometimes they were dim. I think about uh, when my parents inherited my great-grandparents' bedroom set, and it had this mirror on top of the, the dresser. And it had lost a lot of its silvering over the years. And you know, mirrors that have old mirrors lost their silvering, and you look in and you can see yourself, but it's kind of dark and a little bit fuzzy. That's how our view of God is today, in a mirror dimly. Even as redeemed women, men and women, there's a veil, there's a gulf between us and God. Our sin has split apart heaven and earth. But Jesus has begun the work of bringing us back together. One day we will stand before God face to face. No need for a mirror. We'll know him not only through the mediating words of Scripture or through the mediating work of the Holy Spirit, but we will stand before him and know him face to face. And it's on that day our music will finally be taken up into that great symphony that God has been playing, and all that will remain is love. Faith, hope, and love remain, Paul says, They're essential to our life as the church, as the people of God today, but above all, we need to learn love. It's not that faith and hope aren't important. They are vital. But without love, they'll be out of tune with God's symphony. We live by faith. We take hold of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin and the promise of life. We take hold of him by faith as we trust in him. We submit to his lordship by faith, and we live in hope, living for a kingdom and a world for which we've only a down payment. We've only heard that that little bit of the tune now. We've only heard part of the overture, but we anticipate the great concert and the symphony to come. We live in hope, but on that great day when Jesus returns and the kingdom is consummated, faith will vanish into sight. Hope will be fulfilled But love will only intensify and grow greater and stronger and more profound as we see our Lord face to face and the weight of sin and death is finally and fully lifted from us as the blurry image of the mirror is replaced by the real thing. As our simple one-handed song of love on the piano, sometimes I feel like all I can play is, I don't even know what you call it, I sit down to the piano and you play with your knuckles, you know, sometimes I feel that that's all I can play in this great theme of love. But someday it'll be taken up into that great symphony and it will have its part and it will glorify God and add to the beauty. Let me close, brothers and sisters, asking you to think of the words of the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray those words so often, every single day. We know them so well, and it's so easy to forget what they really mean. This is a prayer that looks forward in faith and hope to the day when we will see our Lord face to face. This is a prayer that looks forward to the day when we have grown from little children into adults. This is a prayer that looks forward to that day when love becomes creation's all-consuming theme. The Lord's Prayer looks forward to that day in hope and in faith. But what it asks for is that this theme of love be manifested here today. 
It asks in faith for love to be made known in the midst of sin, in the midst of fear, in the midst of hate, in the midst of death by the Holy Spirit. For our hearts and minds to be transformed by him. Because if anyone is to manifest love in this present age, it is us. The only people in this world who know firsthand the love of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, pray, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. And pray those words in hope of the coming kingdom. And pray those words in faith, trusting and seeking for the Lord to give you his loving heart. So that you can show his love in your church, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your community, in your world. Let's pray. O Lord, you have taught us that whatever we do without love is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love, the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.